That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 633 with my guest, Allison Raskin. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is my podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm a nut job. I'm a nut job. But uh, so are you which is why you're listening. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're just listening to feel better about yourself, in which case my hat is off to you. I hope you're happy with yourself. Uh, I am not a mental health professional. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I, but I think I do have some, some, some wisdom to share. Uh, and sometimes I'm just a great example of what not to be. You know, I, I, I was thinking that there are things that that you can't put a name on, but I know other people feel the same way, and there should be a name for this, but I cannot, I don't have a chance, a real chance at relaxing until I put pajamas on, and then for some reason, especially if they're flannel, it's just like everything melts away. Maybe it's the knowledge that I can't leave the house, or at least I tell myself, because I could put pants on and then leave the house, but I know there are people that relate to that. Um, I have a goal of dying with the least number of people mad at me. I don't know if there's a name for that. Maybe codependency. There Actually, actually there is a name for that one. Uh, I save the absolute worst thing that I'm going to eat all day long until five minutes before I go to bed. And I eat the portion that I say I'm going to eat standing over the sink. I put it away and then I immediately go and I get it out and I eat the same portion again. I don't know if there's a name for that. After I cook, before I eat, I have to wash some of the dishes so I can relax while I'm eating because otherwise it hangs over my head that I've got all those dishes to wash. There must be a name for that. I set my alarm an hour before I actually need to wake up so that I can have the satisfaction of turning it off, resetting it, knowing that I have another hour to sleep. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I get high from it, but the rush of dopamine when something that was going to require me to leave the house gets canceled, it is, it's like being in a jacuzzi. That's the, I don't know if there's a name for that. When I go shopping, if I don't buy something, I'm afraid that they think I'm stealing, so I walk out extra slow. Don't know if there's a name for that. But those of you that are new to the podcast, that's a little, 
that's a little introduction to my brand of uh, of crazy. Let's read some surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Allison. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Casey. And uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself, she writes, number one, you're too much to deal with. And there, that's it. There's nothing else besides that. You're too much to deal with. I think a lot of us relate to that one. And yet there's also a part of us that thinks that we're not enough. Somehow. That's the only way that that, that we can defy logic is by not being enough and being too much both at the same time. I don't know if that made sense. I don't think I even really understood what I said. And I could go back and fix that. But I'd rather leave it in there and <laughs> like that. Oh my God, three weeks ago, there was a minute of silence because something with the editing software I did wrong. And then last week, something got shifted around right before I mixed the episode down and the opening montage got slid over and was overlapping with something else. And God bless you uh, listeners for uh, letting me know that that was going on. You let me know within like four or five hours. So I appreciate that. Um, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Muscle. And uh, he writes, I have a background with abuse as a child, physical, emotional, sexual. I have a mental health diagnosis and take medication. I have a co-occurring substance abuse problem, and I am passionate about helping others with similar issues through working as a counselor. However, I have an extensive record with the courts with mostly drug offenses and also some low-grade violence. The last time I got in trouble was recently, and I'm wondering if I go through school if I am going to have problems finding work because of this. Uh I, I, I debated on whether or not to, to feel this because ultimately my thought is I don't know because I, I'm not a legal expert and I don't, don't work in the field of drug counseling. But what I do know is that a, a lot of drug counselors that I have met have histories of being in prison for violence, for armed robbery, all kinds of crazy things. So I, I seriously doubt that it's going to impact things. But what I did want to say, in addition to that, is you might reach out to uh, a fellow drug counselor or therapist or social worker and let them know what you're thinking, or even a lawyer, and ask, are there laws on the books that you have to you know, have been out of jail for a certain amount of time before you can do something? But, um, you know, some of the best drug counselors out there are the ones who've been to the very bottom. And um, that experience counts for something. So instead of shaming yourself, I say, pat yourself on the back for turning your life around. And uh, I, I have the feeling, because it sounds like your energy is in a good and positive place, I have the feeling that the universe is going to open the door and say, uh, sir, come right this way. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Poop Sparkling Heart Poop. No idea what that means, but uh, I'm a fan, and I hope to begin receiving the newsletter. How would you like to be remembered? Uh, one of the greatest animators of our time. How does it feel writing that? Egoey. 
If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I'd apologize to my friend Laura after I started a relationship with her boyfriend when we all lived together. I should have been brave enough to be honest with her and treated her with respect, and I should have been brave enough to let myself be vulnerable and let her have the power on that moment to walk away from that situation with some dignity. I've had some shit in my life, but this is the only regret that still lasts. Uh, Write as many of these as you feel like. I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't. I feel blank. I should not care what happens now to the ex who abused me, but I watch his Instagram waiting for him to suffer and hoping to see him fail or pay through some act of karma or something. I know it's quite human to want to win, to want vengeance, to want anyone who wronged or rejected you to suffer, but I think I should have let it go by now. I think the level of hope to see he broke up in his latest relationship or that he was finally taken over by drug abuse or started looking fat and wrinkly is just slightly too much and the frequency is more than healthy. Why is that? I don't really care anymore. Honestly, I check in with myself and I'm doing really good and I really don't care about him. So why the obsessive behavior? That's a good question. Our brains are fucking funny that way. And by the way, you are wasting your time looking for somebody to post their failing on Instagram. Um, How does it make you feel to write your real feelings out? Puzzled, honestly, and kind of annoyed. Why don't I understand myself? Join the club. Join the club. I mean, isn't that kind of what the lifelong pursuit in therapy and support groups and conversations with friends is about, is just trying to figure out what the fuck is my brain doing? I think a lot of times that it's something, a vestige of an evolutionarily uh, helpful thing that that is now just there, something that helped us during the hunt or the gather um, I don't know, my two cents. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Honestly, no, I'm sure everyone has those feelings, but I just think the level for me at the moment is weird somehow. You know what I like, and and I'm not being sarcastic here, is that you're curious, but you're not shaming yourself for feeling that. And that's rare in these surveys because most of us, when we feel that we're not doing life, you know, quote, right, unquote, we fucking start laying into ourselves and and you're more kind of yeah you're you don't feel that it's ideal but it it seems like you're a little bit more detached and curious and i think that's really healthy uh would knowing other people that uh, feel the same way make you feel better about yourself not really but it, if we could talk about it maybe we could both learn something Uh, I like it when you're like two detectives on the same case throwing around theories and looking at the angles. You might consider, uh, first of all, thank you for filling that out. That was a great survey. Um, But you might consider uh, posting in the forum. There's a lot of really nice people in there and a great guy that runs it, Manny Mo. Shout out to you. Um, And there's threads on tons of topics there. This is uh, from the same survey, the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself in the shadows of an addict. And how would you like to be remembered? I want to be remembered for my heart, generosity, compassion, and that I left the world a better place than I came in it. How does it feel writing that? It boosts my self-esteem and reminds me that I have a place in this world as well as the power to change the world, as cliche as that sounds. 
How would you use a time machine? I would change the way I lashed out at people in my adolescence and teen years. I was angry but didn't know how to talk about it or seek help, and I would make sure Hitler got into art school. <laughs> it's so fucking dark. Oh, my God. I'm supposed to feel sad about my sister possibly dying from her addiction, but I don't. I feel relieved thinking about it. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? I feel that I'm a terrible person for feeling that way, but if it feels relieving, but it feels relieving to type it out like a release of something inside me. I'm glad that you that you did that and you got to feel that. I had something kind of similar happen. There was a guy in my support group like a decade ago. He was a well-meaning person, but a real a, a hot mess and disruptive in meetings and not like in a malicious, dangerous way, but just annoying and always had to be the center of attention. And and he suddenly died of cancer. He, he was gone within three or four weeks. And I felt bad that a part of me was relieved that he wasn't in the meetings anymore. And then I eventually just went, you know, it's what I feel. It's not like I tried to speed up his cancer. That you know, that would have been something different, but I think it's really human to feel relief when anything that is complicated and heavy in our lives uh, leaves us. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, I've told a couple of trusted people and they all invalidated me and said, no, don't say that, but they've never been in my shoes. No, they haven't, and fuck them. Fuck them. It's what you're feeling. You know, when there is no should or could, it doesn't apply when it comes to feeling. We feel what we feel. Our actions are are what matters. Uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a, a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Cupcake Bridge Troll. I don't even know what that means, but I like it. Uh, about their ADD, I promise I'm not trying to be an asshole. You just weren't talking about my current hyperfixation, so I didn't actually hear anything you said. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. About their abandonment issues, I know there's absolutely no evidence that he will, but I better prepare myself for when he leaves. I don't blame him. I'd leave me too if I could. A snapshot from their life. It's a bad ADHD day and my executive dysfunction is in full swing. Doing a single load of laundry feels the same in my head as trekking up a mountain with multiple heavy packs wearing flip-flops. This one simple task is mentally separated into a million smaller ones and it seems impossible. I decide to go for it anyway and I forget to put detergent in. I pull out all my wet but not clean clothes along with Skittles and meds I forgot were in my pocket and my training stopwatch that now is waterlogged and useless. Now I'm 29 years old, sobbing alone in my laundry room, wishing desperately that anything was easy. Oh man, sending you, sending you some love. I think so many of us have, have experienced that feeling where we just feel like such a weak fuck up and, and we have no compassion for ourselves in that moment. No compassion that our brain is fighting something bigger than us and we're doing the best we can. 
This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Frank. And Frank writes, I love this time of year, fall, the smell of the dying leaves, their last part of their cycle. I love walking in the forest, and the leaves that have fallen have been molded into the hard, smooth dirt road. It almost looks like they were carefully put there and covered with a transparent covering to display them. There's something so special about falling leaves. It feels so sad, lonely, and beautiful. Some of that bittersweet that you spoke about, the good stuff. It feels like I read that one already, but I don't think I, I don't think I did. But yeah, boy, is there any season that brings up as much melancholy as, as fall? Maybe melon season. It's so stupid. Oh, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We were talking about self-knowledge. And uh, one of the things I remember when I was uh, in my 20s was somebody said to me, you're so hostile. And I had no idea. And it wasn't until I got into therapy that I began to realize how much anger I had buried uh, all my life. And uh, I think for a lot of us who have done therapy, uh, the route to uh, self-knowledge would have been really, really hard without uh, an experienced guide to help us through that stuff. Um, if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Or do you say schedule? Nobody says schedule. Fucking idiot. Schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental mental and make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from the podcast this episode is sponsored by when breath becomes air when breath becomes air by paul kalanathy is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis it's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. And then finally, this is... An awfulsome moment filled out by Rory, and she writes, I've been trying to learn to get over my aversion to masturbation and sexual and sexuality due to a mix of gender dysphoria and a family 
that is very critical and judgmental of sex and sexual desire. I've bought toys and explored the parts of me I felt comfortable with, yet came to the realization that the medication I am taking to manage my depression and anxiety is making it difficult to climax. I've been to my doctor for additional medications and have tried all the mental tips to help get me there, but still haven't found anything that works. So, as I'm laying in bed, unintentionally edging myself for hours, all I can hear is the voice of my mother in my head telling me that there is no true fulfillment in sex and God is the only thing that will fill that void in me. In that moment, I realize that since it's been as fulfilling sexually as he has been spiritually, I should name my vibrator God. My consciousness might be disintegrating heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or with my barbies <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with Allison Raskin Who is a, you're an author, you're a podcaster Uh... And most excitingly, uh, you're getting your graduate degree uh, with plans of becoming a therapist. I'm actually, I'm not planning to become a therapist, but I am getting a master's in psychology. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, was That was, I, I read something that that was uh, your plan initially, but th so that has changed? Yeah, I, I went back to school in, in early 2020 and um, I had thought that I would, it would be a great resource and backup career sort of um i think some of it was fear of of what this crazy of what this creative industry is like and the instability of it and like oh this is a potential plan b and then um just through the course of my program and just other things that happened in my career i kind of decided that i prefer to do mental health advocacy more from Sort of a macro level of like writing about it and and interviewing experts and trying to like make things more accessible instead of like me being a therapist you know one-on-one -on -one with clients gotcha i totally understand that i went through the same thing and yeah. at the <laughs> orientation i went i don't think i can do this <laughs> and I, I and i also didn't want the pressure of technically being an expert and not being able to make fucked up jokes and uh, you know and sometimes say something that's completely wrong it just felt like a lot of pressure yeah i don't think it necessarily i mean i i still think that there's a chance that that i'll go back to school to to get that kind of license but i think f my strengths are more in sort of sharing my own story connecting with people through my experiences and that's really not how therapists work you yes. know um and so it's sort of a combination of a bunch of different things but the goal is you know i'm hopefully graduating this summer and have a little more um just a little you know more credibility in the field when i write about all this stuff a little more right. knowledge that i'm not just right. you know speaking from my own experience but having you know been through school and right. um i've learned a lot about other 
forms of mental illness that I personally haven't experienced, which has been really helpful. And, and just so many things that I used to talk about as if I knew what I was talking about. I'm now like, oh, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? <laughs> uh, so what are some of the things that you've learned getting your psychology degree that uh, has have kind of expanded your your knowledge? Uh, one of the biggest things is just how inaccessible therapy is. You know, I think I used to be of this mindset that if you wanted to get better, then like you should just get yourself in therapy and do the work. And now I'm very much like, no, this is a societal failing that like therapy is not accessible to people. And also, I think a real kind of aversion to pop psychology and positivity as like the main thing that will fix people where there's just a lot, again, of, like, systemic issues like racism and um, poverty and, trauma. you know, and trauma that, like, those stigma in- individuals cannot fix themselves out of poverty. Um, so it's, Instagram it, means <laughs> right, like, can't replace therapy? Yeah. So it's, I think, um, just having, like, a more nuanced approach to all of this and, and also just, you know, I think really – believing this one thing was true and then realizing, well, it's true for some people, but that's not true for everybody. And everyone's mental health journey is so different and needs to really be catered to them in their specific context. Couldn't agree more. Uh, So let's talk about your life and your struggles. Um, One of the first things to rear its head uh, was your compulsive thinking. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with um, OCD when I was four years old, um, which is pretty young. But I had something called pandas, which is where I had strep throat, and it kind of ignited um, the OCD in my brain. And so it came on really fast. And my parents thought that I might have a brain tumor. They were really proactive about getting me help. I mean, I've said countless times that if I had gotten sick in another family, I don't know if I'd still be here. I'd, I don't think that I would. And um, so mental health has always just been a part of my life. I mean, there's never been a memory that I have of me as someone who wasn't mentally ill. And I think that that has shaped a lot of the way that I think about this stuff and move through the world and also the possibility of what life can be even if you have, you know, mental illness. What were some of the ways that uh, it presented itself? So um, – it was complex because I think I I was smart enough at four to know that something was wrong, you know. So mm-hmm. I, in a lot of ways with the OCD also came kind of a depression of like I said to my dad, I was like, I need to see a doctor. Something inside That's of me is making me sad. That's incredible for a four-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it was wild. You know, I think I was actually kind of suicidal. I like laid down in the middle of the street and my parents were told that if they didn't, you know, watch me 24-7, I needed to be in a a psych ward. But I was really lucky that my mother was able to watch me 24-7. A lot of contamination fears, you know, washing my hands until they bled. um, That's still very much a theme that's relative in my life, relevant to my life now, um, especially been made worse by COVID. And yeah, just sort of, I think I have a very bad memory of, of my childhood, the way that my OCD manifests now is is really contamination OCD, some reassurance seeking, a lot of doubt of of my of memory and and a fear of of misrepresenting myself. But I think when I was younger, I had some more of those like classic um, physical compulsions that like my mom said I would look like I was like a you know like a baseball 
coach like giving Third signals to like yeah <laughs> giving signals to who knows who um but i don't i don't have any memories of those types of of compulsions um but i have a lot of i still have a lot of cleaning compulsions uh are the urges still there for the uh you know the the movement compulsions that that you used to express no i have a lot of sensory problems so um the way that I dress is very much shaped by my sensory issues, and so I can't wear a lot of clothes that I would wear if I didn't have sensory issues. You know, I would, I haven't worn like real pants in years. I, I, you know, only wear things that are really comfortable on my body because if anything is irritating me, I, you know, it seems from observation that other people can kind of like block that out, right? Like a lot of people wear heels and they just, their feet are in pain and it's not that big of a deal or they're wearing tight jeans and yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't take over their entire mind. Whereas like I like really can't do those things or I just become so worried and obsessed about being uncomfortable that I've just sort of created a wardrobe that isn't. Um, And yeah, and, and just like fears of loud noises, bright lights, like a lot of like sensory overlap with those OCD as well. Uh, those are uh, – uh, this is not me uh, trying to pathologize. It just the thought popped into my head that uh, those are also some of the traits shared with people who are on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that something that has ever come up in uh, conversations with your healthcare providers or – a lot of people on the internet have said that to me. Right. <laughs> you know, like every. And this is me more curious no, than totally, saying, "Hey, totally. here's what's up with you, Allison." No, I get it. I you were by far not the first person to suggest that I have some autistic tendencies, but uh, I I don't think that that's the right diagnosis for me. Um, I think that there's a lot of comorbidity with different disorders. Mm-hmm. I also think so many things are on a spectrum, and for me, my OCD diagnosis makes a lot of sense and feels like the right one. Um, but yeah, like there's definitely overlap. Um, but I think that's common between a lot of different disorders. So what are some of the, uh, mental compulsions that you kind of sit on, uh, that you're, that you're able to suppress and what are some of the ones that the fight is real today in terms of, uh, sometimes this comes out physically and it's more of a battle than the than the things that you can kind of sit on and one of the things that's you know interesting about OCD is like it's not consistent right like the level of how compelled i feel to give into a compulsion really fluctuates based on like my stress level or what's you know if i'm something like covid really exacerbated a lot and kind of gave me a lot of new compulsions Um, and so, you know, like there will be days where like my partner will like be cooking and I'm worried that he hasn't washed his hands and there will be days where I'll be able to say, Allison, it's okay. Don't say anything. And then there will be days where I go, did you wash your hands? (laughs) You know? And so it really, you know, kind of fluctuates in terms of like my level of self-control and also just my willingness to fight it. Right. That's something I've been really talking about a lot and thinking about a lot is sort of. I think a hard and fast rule with OCD tends to be exposure therapy and that you shouldn't give in to your compulsions because that makes it worse. But I've really gravitated more towards like a harm reduction model where there are certain things that are going to really get in the way of my life and my relationships and my ability to function. And then there are other compulsions that like 
fighting it is not worth it. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't really have a negative impact. The relief that comes with it is is worth it to me, especially in a stressful time in my life. I don't constantly want to feel like I am always trying to get better and I'm in a constant state of fighting my own brain. You know, that's an exhausting and, way to live. <laughs> and, and I would imagine that that feeds the cycle, the the stress of I'm not doing this right. Yeah, I think having to like the the complexity of both being a mental health advocate and somebody who's also coming to terms with I'm okay that I'm not fighting this all the time can feel on its face a little like hypocrisy, right? Because so much of the work I do is like you can get better. There are ways to work, you know, work with the symptoms that you have and try to address the ones that are really harmful. But I also think it's a more realistic type of mental health advocacy in a lot of ways, because if we could all just get up and say no to all of our symptoms, then no one would be mentally ill. And and guess what? That's not the case. (laughs) And I'm sure you found that that one of the byproducts of having a struggle that is common is the sense of connection with other people that understand you uh, to a depth that someone who doesn't struggle with that can't understand it's been really interesting you know i i came out to la to be a screenwriter i went to school for screenwriting i wanted to be a tv comedy writer a sketch writer a comedy was always like my main focus but then i started this youtube channel um called just between us with my comedy partner and just through the channel i started talking more and more about the ocd of it all and the anxiety and just you know living with mental illness and This was back in like 2014 and even in like the last nine years, there's been such a shift in how much this stuff is talked about. And and when I was first putting stuff out there, the amount that people were like, oh, my God, thank you for talking about this. You know, like it felt like in a kind of an exciting time to sort of be on the forefront of destigmatizing a lot of stuff. And it was never like my intention to make writing about mental health and creating content about mental health to be my main career goal it was sort of just like an extension of like this other work that i was doing but the reaction from people and having people say that that me being open about my life has made them feel more comfortable in theirs i mean there's no better motivation to keep going than that kind of feedback it 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 is amazing the what a sense of meaning or purpose can do in our lives, especially if we've never felt it that strongly. Talk about um, the positive ripples of having a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, if you can. I think it's really important. I think it can get tied up in the cycle of capitalism and productivity in a negative way, where it can feel like, oh, if we're not being productive, if we're not making money, then we are worthless. And I don't at all want to push that agenda. But I think that there is something to having meaning and purpose in your life. And for some people, that can look like I have a really high paying, amazing job. And for other people, it can be I'm a mom or, you know, like I care for rescued animals. And the purpose, like no one can take away, no one gets to decide what that purpose is other than you. But I think having something that kind of grounds you to why am I getting up every day? Why are the hard parts worth it? What am I kind of striving towards? And again, that's such a spectrum and and it doesn't need to be any sort of financial incentive. It can be very relational. Um, It just grounds us and it makes us, it, it makes the harder parts worth kind of getting through. 
So what are some of the other uh, things you struggled with as a kid? You mentioned depression. Uh, how did that present itself? I mean, you talked about laying down in the in the street when you were four. I think my experience with depression kind of speaks to, again, like how it can manifest so differently because, you know, I have friends and know people with depression who when they're in a bout of it, they can't get out of bed or they can't, they can't do the things that they normally do in their life. I've never had that version of it. For me, like I was always able to get my work done, my schoolwork done, do what needed to be done on my end. It was more that while I was doing it, I did not want to be alive, (laughs) right? So it was like, it was all, I didn't really have like the physical manifestations and symptoms that a lot of people have. But it was just like this sense of of no pleasure in, in taking part in things, really just like wanting to be dead, um, hopelessness, you know, those sort of things. Um, and then also just having also just generalized anxiety disorder where on top of, of the OCD of it all, there's just like a lot of anxiety around um, anticipation. I have a lot of anticipation. Negative anxiety. anticipation. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like yesterday. The doom brain. <laughs> yes. But just like I'm just worrying about stuff all the time. And I think, you know, I I, I worry a lot less like – in a lot of ways, I've gotten such a much better handle on my anxiety and my depression at this stage in my life, you know, at 33 on medication and after years and years of therapy, where it's like the OCD of it all still remains like a real struggle. But like as an example, like I also have a lot of food aversion. I have like um, a lot of fears around food and I don't like a lot of things and I I dread eating a lot of stuff and <laughs> and my partner and I... Uh, get HelloFresh. And so we had like a meal from HelloFresh yesterday that he was going to cook. And all day long, I was so worried about this meal. I was like, I'm going to hate this meal. It's going to be such a struggle to eat. Normally dinner is like a wonderful time for me where I get to like relax. You know, I love food. Like I get to like enjoy that at the end of the day while we watch TV. Like it's a real comfort time. But this time it's going to be terrible because I'm going to hate this food. I really like worked myself into a tizzy. And then I take one bite of it and I'm like, oh, this is wonderful, you know? <laughs> so so are, are there specific uh, repulsions around food or is it just the generally that it's not going to be enjoyable? I just have a really hard time. I'm a vegetarian, but I don't really like vegetables and that makes life tricky. Um, <laughs> and so I just have a lot, like I, you know, I have a lot of comfort foods, like, you know, like, I know that I like certain things, and so then I will repeat them a lot. And I think this is something a lot of people can kind of relate to. And so trying a new thing that is – that was like – what was it? It was like cauliflower, like Baja tacos. I don't know. Like, I don't know why I just became so terrified of it. Like, another time I became so terrified because we were having, like, shepherd's pie with mushrooms, and sometimes I don't like mushrooms, so I convinced myself that it was going to be, like – so overwhelmingly the taste of strong mushrooms and I was like dreading it all you know it's just so much wasted energy and emotion around like dinner (laughs) and how much of this do you share with your partner oh all of it he knows and he just as he's great because at this point he goes he doesn't care like he doesn't he doesn't doesn't try to change you doesn't try to doesn't try to alleviate my anxiety doesn't change what we're eating because in his head he knows I'm gonna like it so he knows that I'm just like having a little freak out and like it's not his problem to deal with, which I think is really important when super important like to not take on your partner's shit in a lot of ways. Like obviously sometimes you need to, but 
most of the time you don't. And um, yeah, and he just went, okay, well, you're going to try it. And then I took a bite. I was like, I love this. And he was like, yes, of course. <laughs> and has this always been the case in your relationship with him? Or was it difficult and was there misunderstanding in the beginning? I think it's always been a pretty good dynamic. You know, sometimes you need to show people that you can take care of yourself, right? So, like, it's it's allowing them to see, oh, I do deal with all of this stuff, but I can, I'm managing it, and this isn't your job to, um, which is sort of like a really big theme in, in my most recent book about, you know, dating with mental illness. It's like you're the primary caregiver of yourself like you are supposed to step in and help yourself and then your partner is sort of a secondary helper who can help out as needed or you know and again this is not when someone is in crisis this is not when someone is in psychosis like there's elements of of mental health where where you need external support and help but when that's not the case and it's more just day-to-day stuff um and then like yeah like it's your responsibility and i think sometimes when people go into relationships with someone who has a mental illness, it can feel like, okay, well, I'm about to get a lot of work, right? I'm about, my life's about to have like a more workload. And being able to say to that person, like, yeah, sometimes I will need your support, but my mental health is is my priority and my responsibility in a way. Have there ever been times where your partner has had to set a boundary or express a need that involves um, you taking responsibility for the things that you can around your mental illness. Definitely. Uh, I want to clean his stuff all the time, and sometimes I'm not allowed to. He made me get, like, electronic wipes for his computer and phone because I wanted to just use Clorox wipes, and he finds those to be damaging, even though I use them all the time. I don't think they are. Uh, you know, <laughs> so that was, like, uh, a compromise. Um, I definitely don't clean his stuff as much as I clean my stuff because I know he doesn't want me to. Um, he has, like, a – I find airplanes to be unbelievably contaminated, and so my OCD comes out the worst on travel days. And I really wanted him to get a bag for the airplane that was washable, but he didn't want to do that. And so – what we do now is that his bag's not washable, but when we get home, he sprays it with, you know, Clorox or Lysol or whatever. And does that make me super happy? No, but it's like a compromise. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not like, oh, if your partner has contamination OCD, it won't affect your life. Like, it definitely <laughs> affects his life. But I think he is good at saying, like, when it is too much or when it is, you know, and also on me to pick up on, like, when am I asking for too much? When am I pushing too much? Uh do you find that having to have these conversations with your partner uh, takes your relationship to another level be- because of the, uh, you know, it's kind of a gym for uh, your emotions and your communication skills? Don't let me put words in your mouth, but, <laughs> but have you found it to be um, different than uh, – uh, the depth of relationships where maybe ideally it wasn't handled well by either you or a a partner? I think the amount of work that I have done on myself because I've been sick has made me a better partner. So yes, like there are annoyances that come with me having contamination OCD, but also I really know how to articulate myself. I know how to articulate my feelings. I know how to be empathetic towards him. I know how to 
look at things more nuanced. I know how to not take things so personally. I've built up my self-esteem. You know, like all this kind of work that I did, I think allowed us to have a type of mature and communicative relationship that like I couldn't have when I was 25. And where did you learn most of those things? It was a journey, you know. I think uh, some of it's age. Like I really do think that your brain sort of changes and um, it's harder to have kind of self-control when you're younger in a lot of ways. And then um, going back on medication when I was like 27 or 28 changed a lot for me. That really let me apply all of the things that I had been learning in therapy. And then really the biggest one was just working on my relationship with myself and by be building up my own self-esteem and self-confidence and all of that, you know, you become less impacted by other people's opinions of you. And you also have a different schema about yourself, which is sort of like the lens through which you see the world. So when my lens was nobody will ever love me enough, then everything was seen through that lens of, well, this proves my original hypothesis, you know, but like, when my schema became, I'm great and anyone would be lucky to be with me, then you're seeing things through that lens. And the same action on the on the part of your partner comes across totally differently to you. And and uh, I think you're coming at life from a, a, a place of abundance rather than fear mm-hmm. and scarcity, uh, which if you're battling depression uh, – I have always felt like makes things a thousand times worse because I'm sure you've experienced this when you're really depressed and you feel the need to smile in a social situation. It feels like you're bench pressing 500 pounds. But what's wild is like that's a lot of times how you get better is like one of the first lines of defense for depression is behavioral activation, which is really just sort of forcing yourself to do things you normally like, even though you don't want to do it right now. And I think for me, having gone through different bouts of depression, what's changed is knowing it will end, you know, because the first couple of times you're like, well, this is life now. I will feel this way forever. But when you've had, you know, you're in your 30s and you've gone through so many different phases of your mental health, it's like, oh, this sucks to be back here, but I won't be back here forever. And also I won't be back here for as long because I have figured out ways to to pull myself out or to really importantly, I think, to recognize the signals earlier so that you don't sink all the way into it because you could be like, oh, I'm getting more irritable. This is interesting. Normally when I'm irritable, that's a signal that I'm kind of entering a bad space. And so maybe I need to have a little less on my calendar or I need to really prioritize sleep or talk to my psychiatrist about increasing my medication for a bit. Like being as proactive as you can before it gets really hard to do anything. So important. So important to understand what we have control over and and what we don't. Uh, I think when we conflate the two, um, it, 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 I think we wind up beating ourselves up. You know, why do I have depression? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not doing something right because I, I have this. It's like people with diabetes blaming themselves for not, (laughs) producing enough insulin. And I really, you know, having gotten sick so young, like there's obviously a a version of my life where like what would have happened if I hadn't gotten strep throat and I hadn't gotten such severe OCD so young. And it's never really been appealing to me to go down that fantasy lane because where does it take me? Like the, I think like a, a big thing I've learned lately is like 
just like radical acceptance of like, okay, so this is what happened and now what do we do with it? Instead of like, oh, but if only this had happened instead or but what if this instead or, you know, like it doesn't really serve you. Um, And just sort of, again, acknowledging how little is in our control, you know, like especially with things that like when a really terrible thing happens to you, being able to say like, of course I, of course this messed up my life. Like it's not that I'm a failure or I'm weak. It's like, of course I feel terrible now. And I think that that's helped me a lot too. Accepting that we're feeling what we're feeling is one of the kindest things that we can do yeah. for ourselves. And that feelings pass, you know, that like the way you feel about something right now might not be the way you feel about it forever. And I think also a lot of us can like hold a lot of morality around our feelings and thoughts. And a big divider for me is like I base my morality around my actions, not around having petty thoughts or jealous thoughts or mean thoughts. Like I can't control those. Those aren't those are just something that pass through me. But the if I then act on jealousy by, you know, slashing someone's tire so they can't make it to the audition, then that's bad. But if I just like have a bad thought where it's like, oh, I hope they don't make it and I get the part instead. Like that's just a hope. It doesn't, it doesn't influence the world in any way. (laughs) And uh, are there any instances you can think of where your actions, uh, you regretted, um, and how did you handle it post action? A big thing for me is changing my self concept from someone who should be perfect to someone who makes mistakes, right? Because if you think of yourself as someone who makes mistakes, then when you make a mistake, it doesn't like shatter your worldview, right? It's like, yeah, I, I'm someone who makes mistakes and oh, I made a mistake. And what I try to really focus on is like, how do I not make that same mistake again? <laughs> like if I'm making the same mistake over and over again, then I, I think there's, it's right to hold yourself accountable and to really like sit down with yes. that and be like, What's going on here? Like, I should take some responsibility. But if you make a mistake and then you learn from it, you have takeaways, you know why you don't want to do it again, then that's just part of being alive. It is such a difference between making a note to self and just ruminating Mm -hmm. with self-hatred. Yeah, big time. Because the ruminating doesn't solve the problem. The note to self means you'll change in the future. Uh, One of the chapters in your book, and and the name of your uh, book is is overthinking about you navigating romantic relationships when you have anxiety, OCD, and or depression. Uh, And one of the chapters is how can I handle breakups better? Yes. So (laughs) I think that especially for people with anxiety and depression, I mean, all all people, breakups are horrible, right? Like it it is is both like a, a rejection and it is also a huge loss. And I actually, um, my ex-fiance walked out on me while I was writing this book. And I really uh, did not see it coming. It was very sudden and traumatic. Um, and I really had to like use a lot of what I had just been studying and researching about and writing about to apply to my own life, to like the biggest breakup of my life. And what was really interesting was in the past, breakups had brought me to the brink, right? Like I had a breakup in in 2017 where like my mom had to fly out to like 
make sure I didn't harm myself. And I, it had really made me not want to live. And I had really beaten myself up about these breakups. And I had jumped to hopelessness and despair and all of these things. And what was so different from my broken engagement Versus earlier breakups, which, you know, objectively were not as life shattering. Like this was Hmm. a person I was planning to marry, had lived with, like it was, you know, had the the rug ripped out from under me. But the things I really noticed that helped me was focusing on the grief instead of the rejection. So the grief is real, right? You're losing a person that you talk to every day. You're losing your best friend. You're also losing the future you've been planning on, right? Like I thought I was going to finally be married, which was always a real priority for me. Um, All of that, I, I was losing his family, his friends, so many, so much loss. And loss needs to be processed and acknowledged. But what you don't need to do is sit in the rejection and and add meaning to the rejection and say, well, because this person rejected me, that means I'm a piece of shit or I'm unlovable or no one will ever care about me. And I didn't really let myself go there. And I really focused on also, like I kind of spoke to before, just really sitting in the reality of the situation of, okay, he left, not letting myself go through the what ifs because what if thoughts are really damaging and especially for an anxious mind they're like pretty addictive and it you know it could have been like well what if I had picked up on his him falling out of love with me sooner or what if I had said this then or what if I had done that and it's like you know you're you're trying to solve a problem that can't be solved because the thing already happened (laughs) and so Instead of just like really focusing on what I could have done or I think focusing on what he was feeling now, I just focused on myself. Like I was like, I have to get myself through this. I can't be preoccupied with like, but what is he thinking or like, you know, I mean, the the why must be so uh, just like catnip. I mean, the only explanation I got was something is missing. And I mean, that is really rough right because your brain wants to figure out that something (laughs) and it's really easy to fill that gap in with all the things you don't like about yourself very easy to go to i'm not enough i'm not enough i'm not attractive enough my ocd pushed them away i don't know how to cook like all the all the insecurities i had about myself i could really have filled in but what good does that do because i will never get an acknowledgement that that was true you will never say yep it was that thing i'll never know So all I'm doing in the process is just unnecessarily beating myself up. And then when you beat yourself up following a breakup, you're you're not only having to heal your heart, you're like having to heal like your whole sense of self. (laughs) And so really separating my sense of self from my heartache allowed me to move on and, and to not be changed for the worse after something so traumatic. That's a pretty emotionally wise uh, path for somebody to go down, especially with an anxious brain. I mean, do you ever look back and just say to yourself, you're a fucking badass that you got through this and you broke the right tools out to deal with this no matter what you were feeling? Yeah, I'm proud of myself all the time about it. You You should be. (laughs) I have this image of, you know, he left – in November of 2020. And so this is, you know, pre-vaccines, like, 
like, you know, there's such tragic scenes of my friends trying to comfort me but not being able to touch me or come into my apartment. Oh. Like, it was, like, the added thing of, of being in a pandemic. And um, I decided, obviously, that I wanted to fly back home to New York to, to grieve with my family. And so a few days after he left, I was, you know, standing at LAX wearing a mask with my dog. And I went, it's really amazing I got myself here. Like, it's really amazing that I did what I needed to do to, like, even just, like, pack my suitcase and, like, get a cab and get my dog together and just be able to get myself home so that other people could care for me. Um, it was, like, a real moment. I, like, I was so heartbroken, but I also, like, took the time to be, like, good job. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is pretty amazing. Uh, there's a chapter in your book uh, that I think is such an important topic. What's me and what's my disorder? Yes. So there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of different takes on this, I think, in the mental health community. I know for some people with certain things, they, you know, like they will say, like, I am autistic. Um, they will, like, identify with the um, neurodivergency in some way. But for me, um, and again, this is so personal, I have, I really value the language that separates me from my disorders. So I'm not OCD, I have OCD. And even just like the way that we use words and we talk about things, I think really impacts the way we view ourselves in the world. And so for me to sort of like, it's kind of like a narrative therapy technique of like see these things outside of myself. Um, and, and to me in my head, my real self exists. And then on top of those things are my OCD and my anxiety. And um, being able to like, figure out that it's not that like I'm such an uptight controlling person I'm actually like a pretty easygoing person who has some mental illness <laughs> right that can sort of like blur my personality and really being able to focus on that and and recognize like what that who I really am and get in touch with who I really am and what I value and then like okay I also deal with these symptoms it makes me have a very different self-image than when I used to view myself as someone who was just so uptight and hard to deal with and and I think if we don't become proactive about saying how can I develop tools to make sure I'm doing the best I can to mm -hmm. live with a disorder or whatever it is that we're battling um not only do we owe it to ourselves, but we owe it to the people around us that we love to to do what we can to see that we're bringing our best self rather than saying, well, I, you know, I didn't call you, uh, you know, about not coming to your wedding uh, because I was depressed. Now, he probably could have picked the phone call up and uh, the phone up and at least said, hey, I'm really fucking depressed. I can't make it. I'm sorry. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of like the changes I did for myself, you then see how they impact your relationship. So one of the big ones was like emotional regulation. Like I used to just not be able to regulate my emotions. And that meant that every day I did not know how I was going to react to things. I didn't know what would set me off. I didn't know what would make me be like, eh, whatever. Like I kind of like lived in fear of my own volatility and so did everybody else, you know? And so then when I got a better handle on that, suddenly people don't need to walk on eggshells around me anymore. It's easier for people to bring up stuff to me because I'm not going to have a huge reaction to it. And it's kind of this like dual 
thing that is both like helping your internal world, but also is like really helping you in relation to others. What were some of the ways, if you're comfortable sharing them, that you you did act with volatility? I used to just like get really mad at my parents and I would like hang up on them. But I would never do that now. <laughs> like now, like sometimes things will happen and they'll say something I disagree with or they say something unintentionally that hurts my feelings. And I just the way that I react is different. Like to me, emotional regulation doesn't mean that you don't have emotion. It means that you are in control of when you deal with and process that emotion and to what intensity. So there are times where in the past, like, I would maybe freak out in the moment about something or... Outwardly freak out. Yeah, like, you know, get really mad or not be able, you know, to not be able to remain. Like, now I can kind of, I get to decide how I want to react. It's really just allowing for a pause. It's allowing yourself to have... Um, a response instead of a reaction. And did that involve incorporating self-soothing behaviors? Absolutely. Self-soothing is huge. (laughs) Talk talk about that. I think when I was younger, it was like always looking for other people to calm me down or for other things to calm me down or for the circumstances in my life to change so that I could feel better. But being able to just like say to myself, like, you're okay. Like, you know, for example, (laughs) this is kind of silly, but like I wear contacts and I have a real fear that I won't be able to get my contacts out of my eyes. Um, I think it's probably because I keep having this recurring dream that I'm like wearing all these contacts. Like who knows? Someone, <laughs> some analyst would have a field day with it. But like the other night or a few months ago, I was really struggling to get my contact out of my eye. And I could feel my body get tense. And in the past, I think I would have really freaked out i would have said i'm never going to get my contact out i would have spun out i would have gotten really emotional i maybe would have cried like i would have just like it would have ruined my night but instead be able to say to myself okay let's like not tense up our shoulders i mean so much of of our of of how we feel kind of has to do with our body right so not allowing my body to get super tense being able to take some deep breaths say every other night of your entire life you have been able to get your contacts out so the evidence suggests that you will probably be able to get them out tonight. And if you start to freak out, it'll probably be harder to get them out. So why don't we just like take a breath, take some time. There's no pressure here for how quickly you have to get them out. And then we'll we'll get your contacts out. <laughs> is, is there anything that a pause and a deep breath can't help with? Right? <laughs> and it's, it's so simple. It's there all the time. And yet uh, so often we plow through it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that my psychiatrist said that really helped me is like the the imagery of a stop sign in your brain of like when you realize that you're going down a path of thought that is not going to be helpful to you to really just imagine a stop sign. So just in that example of like I'll never get my contacts out, just like stop. You're not like that's not a helpful thought process to right. go down. And, and that was a, a game changer for me. And, and uh, another stop sign uh is if i find myself using the word always or never that's Mm -hmm. usually a red flag that the black and white thinking and the catastrophizing is uh is coming up that's been one of the biggest changes in my entire life and every aspect of it is is allowing for nuance and getting more comfortable in the gray area and even being able to say i don't know how i feel about this I think when I was 21, the idea that I wouldn't know how I felt about something was so foreign, <laughs> right? Like I had to have a strong opinion about everything. 
And now I'll be like, I don't know, you know, and being able to say, I don't know, is so freeing. So freeing (laughs) and so much less annoying to people around us. (laughs) Oh, my God. Using, you know, the fear of not knowing, it, it can drive so many people away from us. We have no idea how exhausting it is to hear somebody weigh in on everything as if they are the world's expert also like allowing for the fact that like if life is uncertain i don't need to be certain about things right like it's not serving me to feel like i have to be coming from a place of certainty when when that doesn't really even exist and and i also think it that pause allows an opportunity for help to come to us whether we need it or not it's it it opens the door for connection and for other people to love us. The, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to let other people love us. Being comfortable allowing help is transformative. I mean, like after my broken engagement, letting people care for me and letting my friends step up and do things that in the past I would have felt uncomfortable asking of them. Like it builds bonds. When somebody asks you for a favor, you then feel tied to them like it 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 is a wonderful thing when you're able to to be able to help someone and it it builds connection it builds intimacy and i think we live in this i in at least in america there's this very big idea of like that that independence is a sign of strength but i really like to live a life of interdependence which is basically the idea that like you are comfortable depending on other people but you still also are able to live your own life and and your decisions are not just based on other people you know it's sort of this middle ground between codependence and independence and i really love and gravitate towards that like i think it is a brave thing to depend on another person and to trust that they will show up for you and yeah sometimes people disappoint you but in my experience i would much rather take the risk of being disappointed than live a life where i don't trust or depend on anybody oh agree a thousand percent uh one of the chapters in your book is what sex got to do with it yeah so um this was a chapter that was really hard for me to write um i've been you know on the internet and writing and sharing about my life um for a really long time but this is a area I've never felt comfortable talking about publicly. But when I was writing the book, I knew I had to because how can I write a book about relationships and not sort of bring that part into it? And I think something people don't talk about enough is just like it doesn't make any sense that you can have anxiety in every aspect of your life and then suddenly in the bedroom it wouldn't exist or it wouldn't interfere or it wouldn't play a role. Um, So I just really wanted to speak to that and also kind of hopefully give some tools for how to talk about it with a partner, how to remove your self-blame and to also just kind of like normalize that not everyone has, you know, the most like easy, like A to B relationship with with sex. Um, And that for some of us, like it is more challenging and it can look different and medication can also have a big impact um, and just sort of like allow for that discussion. Being be, being comfortable or at least getting to the place where you feel comfortable um, saying I'm not in the mood is a really scary place for some people because we feel like, oh, I'm not meeting my partner's every need. They're going to think I'm not attracted to them. And, you know, there have been times in my life, whether it's medication or depression, where I have said that and as scary as it was 
Um, not only was it beneficial to me, but I feel like it was beneficial to them because I let them know I I am, am still interested in being affectionate, just not sexually right now. And and some people never do that. They go through the motions, and it kind of breaks my heart that they're not taking care of themselves. You're nodding affirmatively. <laughs> talk talk about that. So one of my intentions for the book was not just for it to be helpful for the people with these disorders, but to also be helpful to partners. And I think that we have this idea that like like you alluded to, that if somebody isn't wanting to, to engage sexually with you, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your relationship or your connection or it's a rejection of you. And one of the big premises is like it it is really important for your partner not to take things so personally and for your partner to sort of like understand where you are coming from. And and if you're someone who struggles with depression and that leads to a low sex drive, it's going to be really tricky to have a partner who gets mad at you every time you're not in the mood, right? Like that's the signal of like, ooh, this is going to be a real uphill battle of a relationship versus a partner who can say, okay, I understand that that's not – this is not about me. You know, not everything is in relation to you. Um, that's the good news and the bad news. Exactly. <laughs> and so that's why I think really filling in your partner about what's going on with you, how these things manifest for you, you know, maybe why certain things like orgasm isn't a part of, of your repertoire, you know, and, and being able to say, like, I get why you would take this personally, but you really shouldn't. And then picking people who have the ability not to take that personally. When we express our needs and our feelings to somebody in a way that, you know, that isn't aggressive, uh, we give them the opportunity to reveal their character. That's a really great point. And it's something in the chapter about like, you know, sharing your mental health with a potential partner. I really say like, in those moments of disclosure, we tend to be so focused on what the other person is going to think of the information we're giving. But it's actually a moment that is really revealing of the other person's character and understanding and ability for empathy. And so when you share stuff and the other person either doesn't care or doesn't... Tries or, to change tries, you. Tries to change you, doesn't get it, you know, like... It's not necessarily like, oh, I'm, I'm a, this means that they're not going to like me. Like in those moments, you're very entitled to be like, I don't like them. <laughs> like, how dare they? I, I open up, I'm vulnerable, I share this thing, and they don't even have like the decency or capacity to sit with it and hold space for it. Like, I don't need to live a life like that. I deserve a partner who can hold space mm-hmm. for me and who can, you know, ask curious questions without judgment and really listen. Um, and that's, I think, a really big signal for people with mental health, you know, extensive mental health histories to pay attention to when they're starting uh-huh. to date and looking for a partner. And and at least try, you know, if if when we do open up, it's it's met with a less than ideal response from them. It could be coming from a place of ignorance and they're willing to learn. Right. And so uh, I, th- I think be- being willing to say, you know, I know you love me. I know you care about me right now. It would be awesome if, if you... I, I just need somebody to listen and to um, to be there for me, and that gives them gives the opportunity for them to see. Oh, they do take this in; they are willing to learn. But that's certainly a big red flag if they 
if they don't take that in. And everyone has a different relationship and knowledge around mental health, right? So if your partner, someone who's never been to therapy, grew up in a family that never talked about mental health, you know, that first time you share something, they might be kind of confused and have some questions. And I think we also need to allow space for people to have questions Mm -hmm. and to have concern. You know, like people don't need to have a perfect response. And people, if somebody says, you know, I have a history of, of really intense suicidal ideation, I don't think it's necessarily realistic for your your date to go, oh, great. You know, like there's going to be concern there. And I think really allowing for a conversation of, okay, and what does that mean? Like what will that mean in my life and how to be your partner? And And sometimes it can be really beneficial to either provide them with like psychoeducation resources where sort of like, hey, this is a book that I think would maybe help you understand me better Or even if you're in therapy, letting them come into a session, letting them talk to your therapist. You know, I think um, even letting them talk to your therapist alone to sort of ask the questions that maybe they're afraid to ask in front of you. Allowing them to have a process and their own feelings about things too. And then that's a a situation where you can't take it personally, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Love it. Love it. Such such wisdom. Do Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I'm just I'm just so glad we're we're having more of these kinds of open conversations about yeah. all of this. Oh, and uh plug your podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Yeah, so my podcast is called Just Between Us. It's a weekly show where we talk a lot about mental health and then I also have um a mental health focused Substack and Instagram account called Emotional Support Lady if you want to check out any more of my work. And um what are some of the social media handles? I've got um, at Allison Raskin, at Emotional Support Lady, and those those are the two main ones. <laughs> awesome. Well, kudos on all the uh, work that you're doing. You're helping a lot of people, and I uh, love chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Many, many thanks to Allison. I just love when a, a stranger walks through the door, and an hour later, you've had this amazing conversation with them when you know about important things in their lives and struggles that they've handled it's just i don't know it's it's one of the parts i love about about being alive okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as sad and euphoric. And they write, for context, I am a trans, masculine, non-binary person who most people see as a woman, but I don't identify as one, and my family didn't know about this at the time. During our last Christmas with my grandmother, her dementia was already really bad, and she wondered out loud 
who the young man was, referring to me. It made me feel really euphoric, while I also realized that my grandmother had pretty much forgotten who I was and was never going to recognize me again. I remember how the moment made me smile while my heart sank to my stomach. That is, boy, you talk about bittersweet. Holy shit. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Autism Dad. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a, he says, a pretty dysfunctional environment. Says that he's never been sexually abused, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. Systematic physical abuse from my father and older brother. Constant shaming from my younger brother. And emotional abuse, abandonment, and emotional incest from my mother. This led me to a full breakdown resulting in lifelong anxiety, depression, social isolation, and suicidal fantasies. Not that I'd act on the latter. I had to cut off all contact with them to protect my already destroyed psyche and my children uh, from their poison. Any positive experiences with abusers? They are my brothers and mother, so cutting the ties that bind certainly complicated things but was entirely necessary for my own survival. And high five to you, man. It, it is, certainly goes against the grain of what society uh, says about family. But, um, you know, I, I had an epiphany during my crisis with cutting ties with my mom. And the, the phrase that popped into my head was, have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And I, and I try to remind myself of that when I begin to feel guilty and feel like, oh, I should, you know, I made the wrong decision. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize regularly about having a weekend at a posh hotel with my brother-in-law's wife. She's kind and beautiful, and I think of her often. The taboo part in my fantasy is that at the start of the weekend, I would cut all of her hair off before making passionate love to her. We would then spend the weekend together in bed, eating dinner, and spending time together. This thought makes me extremely hard to the point of throbbing, and I masturbate to it more than anything else. I adore my wife, but this is something altogether more carnal and animalistic, the true fulfillment of a fantasy. Excuse me, I got to... <clears throat> something is still sticking around in my chest, and it's driving me fucking bananas. Darkest Secrets. I had a threesome with my best friend and his girlfriend whilst my ex-girlfriend was in the other room on kidney dialysis. As well as having intercourse with her, I also performed oral sex on him, my first and only homosexual experience. I then went into the next room and spooned my ex-girlfriend whilst she sobbed. I think she knew. It fills me with great shame to this day, and I have never strayed since. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My wife, when she doesn't shave her pubic hair and gets her hair cut short. Also, my brother-in-law's wife simply being in the room and seeing me uh, get hard over her. Just a divine feeling. Uh, so, I think I read that right. The wife, when she doesn't shave her pubic hair and gets her hair so short on top and, uh, and the pubic hair grown out. I'm just, uh, I'm not putting a joke together. I'm just uh, uh, trying to understand. Uh, 
what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell my biological family that they are simply cancerous in terms of personality. Wouldn't that be great if there was a greeting card for that? <laughs> what, if anything, do you wish for? Peace in my life and happiness. Have you shared these things with others? Never, due to the taboo nature of the fantasy and the love and respect I have for my wife. How do you feel after writing these things down? <laughs> Liberated and hard. Well, I high five, high ten. Thank you for filling that out and sharing that. I I don't think I've ever come across that one about the uh, the cutting the hair short, but I do find something sexy uh, when women have really short hair. God damn it! <clears throat> so sorry. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Swamp Witch. And she writes, I love it when I'm talking to a stranger, and I assume it will be difficult to relate with them, or I'll have to dig deep to make any connection. But then they say one little thing, and suddenly we're getting along like we know each other, and with minutes, within minutes, we're being idiots together. I also love it when Paul talks about ice cream the same way I talk and feel about chocolate. I, too, am a sugar monster. Thank you for sharing that. I haven't had ice cream in so fucking long. It's interesting, though, how, how when you stop eating it, you stop craving it. Or maybe some people don't, but I do. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself comfortably numb. She identifies as straight. Um, she is in her 40s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment, drug addicts and the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. Uh, reading a, Speaking of the Catholic Church, reading a great book right now uh, called We Don't Know Ourselves. Um, oh, what the fuck is the author's name? He's, a, he's an Irish guy, and he writes about Ireland uh, starting the year he was born, which I think was 1957. And he looks through, he looks at the lens of key moments in Irish history through the lens of his personal life and uh it's it's uh it's really interesting he's a, he's a great writer but there's also a lot of moments in it where i just feel dumb like i don't know what he just said <laughs> there's also a lot of irish references that uh, that are lost on me and that's certainly understandable but <clears throat> so uh let's see this woman was the victim of sexual abuse one she reported and the other she never reported i was molested at a young age uh in parentheses don't know how old by a family friend who bought me hawaiian punch and cracker jacks i thought he was giving me thing these things because i let him lick me and then parentheses my vagina after a few times i told my dad i no longer wanted hawaiian punch and cracker jack so he won't lick me more the look on my dad's face I will never forget. Later that week, the family friend, quote, jumped, unquote, off a freeway overpass. When I was 11, I was raped by two high school boys, and I never told a soul. I ran home bleeding and in pain. My God. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My father was a Vietnam vet and a maniac who abused me, my sister, and my mom until I ran away at age 11. 
I missed him so much that I made sure to date equally crazy assholes most of my life. Any positive experiences with abusers? The positive is that I am very strong and have overcome many of life's shitty events that would have caused most to put a bullet in their head. Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about killing porn stars. I hate competition. Darkest secrets. I'm very open with my crazy. I don't share that I am a sex addict and love giving oral sex. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Lesbian fantasies with older women. I could never be a lesbian. I hate females and pussy is an acquired taste. Uh, I think that should be a a t-shirt. Pussy is an acquired taste. Uh, What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I say what I feel and think, but I guess I would like to thank my mom who has passed away. Thank her for trying to be a mom. What if anything do you wish for? Happiness. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. How do you feel after writing these things down? Fantastic. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Tell my sister I love her and want her clean and sober. Thank you for that. Very, very heartfelt and detailed. I love a good detailed survey. All right. I was going to read more surveys, but I think my windpipe is starting to get annoying and probably has already chased away our friends with misophonia. So I am going to wrap it up with some loves. And this is uh, filled out by somebody who calls themselves terrible with names, but never forget a face. Uh, And they write, I love moss. I love touching it and imagining a tiny bug (laughs) using it as a pillow. I love when my cat would come running, uh, would come running to me, calling him and my older neighbor poked over the fence and said, he really is your cat, isn't he? I'm not sure I read that right. I love when my cat would come, oh, she's talking about the past tense, would come running to me calling him and my older neighbor poked over the fence. Uh, I might have to cast you to hell for the grammar on that. I hate to do that in the middle of a love, but rules are rules. And uh, get into the vehicle and enjoy your trip. I love laying flowers out for loved ones that have passed, pets included, and talking to them like they are here. It's so funny. I do that whenever Herbert's picture or any of my past dog's pictures come up on a digital frame that I have. It's just... It's when you talk to them, it feels like it feels like part of them is still there. Um, I love when I get a good idea and I feel less worried that my brain is slowing down and like I'll be okay after all. I love thrifting. I love big sweaters in fall. I love when my kids hug me unexpectedly or say they love me before bed. I love when my partner squeezes me unexpectedly in bed just to say I love you. I love tiny bugs, especially roly-polies, and how they roll into a protective ball when they are frightened but will slowly unfurl in your hand. I love releasing bugs back to the outside when they come in my house, even spiders. I love waving at strangers while I drive that are in the same car as me. I get a chuckle at the momentary confusion and the thought that life is fucking ridiculous. 
I love the first dab of paint I put on the canvas. And finally, I love the moon. It gives me such a sense of calm looking up at it. I feel connected to it in some way. And I like to think of all the people living and otherwise who ever looked up at the moon too. Thank you, Paul, and also fuck off if you don't like this survey. I loved your survey. It was awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and uh, I hope my <clears throat> throat wasn't wasn't too annoying. Oh, God, I have the feeling that thing that I was battling for two weeks is back now. Ugh. It, it, it's bad enough going to the doctor, but going back to the doctor for the same thing, and I'm afraid I might be having to do that for my shoulder because my shoulder is healing very, very slow. All right, this isn't a fucking doctor's appointment, Paul. Wrap this thing up and let the people be on their way. If you're out there and you feel it stuck, I just want you to know, uh, I don't know who this guy is, but I hope you're a big fan of him. Sounds a little bit like me and DJ Voice, but me and DJ Voice is down here, man. He'll tell you to fuck off because he doesn't like nothing about you. Go out rocking the quiet city with three in a row of Mark Ben Turner Overdrive. But this guy, this guy's a little more mellow. I think this guy might be high. That's right, this guy's smoking a big bong load. He's doing tabs. Oh my God, what is the matter with me? Now I sound like Mitch Hedberg. All right, I'm going to wrap this thing up. If you are out there and you are feeling stuck, you are not alone. Never forget that you are not alone and nothing destroys the quality of our life like obsessing about the quality of our lives. And thanks for listening. Oh, that was fun. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely